right expression, but just how saved we are. I guess that's, uh, that's the best I know how to say it, and it doesn't even convey everything. Um, but we're going to be looking at the song of the saved today. And so, like I say, this was either a song before Paul said it or after Paul said it. It would have definitely been a song that the people would have sang because it is the sort of thing that sets us to singing as we think, as we think about the, the way that we have been um, saved, the, the protection that, that God gives us, the provision that God gives us, this is what sets us to singing. And so this is kind of a wonderful expression that, that finishes up everything that, that he has to say um, about our salvation before he moves on into an entirely different topic. Um, you know, many believers claim this, some of these verses or all of these verses as kind of their life verses because they are so meaningful, they are so powerful, and in the most challenging and darkest of times, these are the kinds of promises that get us through. There are things that we, that, that's nice to know, there are things that are helpful to know, there are things that definitely help us make decisions, but sometimes you're grasping for something to help you get through. And that's what this passage is, is it is one of those things that reminds us that regardless of what's happening, no matter what kind of challenges we may face, whether they be you know, disasters of our own making or whether it be something that's coming at us from outside, we can't be separated from God. And that is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. So as Paul explains things, there's some things that we learn. One thing, we were totally lost before we were saved. We were thoroughly lost. There was no way for us to be saved. There was no means by mankind to get us there. There was no work. There was no, there was no path. There was no plan. There was nothing to save us until Jesus. Um, and so he's explained that, and now he's explaining to us that we have been so totally saved that we have so much to celebrate. And that's basically what this is about. So in this passage, we will see two key truths that carry us through the darkest times in our lives. So it's important for us to remember that our relationship with the Lord is the most important relationship we will ever have, and it alone can sustain us through the pain and suffering in this life. And so this is going to be key. We have to recognize that, that, that there is truth here, but if we don't know it, if we don't cling to it, if we don't believe it, it will not help us. We have to know what God says. We have to know what He has promised in order for us to, to benefit from this. So that relationship between us and God, that is the most important relationship. Without that relationship, we don't make it. Without that relationship, we don't have the strength that we need. So the sermon in the sentence is this. The absolute victory we have in Jesus means that we can never be condemned and nothing can separate us from the love of God. If you'll recall, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is circling back to this to remind us of this, but to clarify exactly why it's impossible for those who have been redeemed to then be condemned. Um, so let's read this passage. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 31 um, through, uh, through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so as we get into this, the first major truth that we see is that we cannot be condemned. Um, so this is a concluding passage uh, for the first half of the epistle, and it's more than half, I guess you would, I mean, technically it is half, but there's, there's more information, that it's front-loaded, I guess you'd say. Um, but this is the concluding passage to this, um, and this is very much a Christian's triumph song. This is a celebration of what salvation means for us and what it has done in our lives. And so there, there are two major thoughts in this passage. There's a lot of different ideas, but two major thoughts that Paul expresses in this passage. And the first one is that it is impossible for any charge against the believer to be sustained before God. So what does that mean? Well, basically, Paul starts off with this rhetorical question. This is something that he's been doing all along. What shall we say then? He's been doing this all along. So he starts with this rhetorical question. Um, basically, the question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Um, now, before we go down this path to kind of cover this verse, verse uh, 31, I think it should be noted that there is a distinct difference between God being for us and God being for our cause. If you are a student of history, you know that throughout the years in the history of Christianity, people have said, God is for our cause, therefore we cannot fail. God is for our cause, therefore we can do whatever is necessary to achieve that end. You look at some of the terrible times that the Catholic Church had. You look at um, Puritan colonial America and all the things that, you know, I mean, so just think about this. Most of you in high school had to read the Scarlet Letter, right? That's all about people saying God's for our cause. So you were persecuted for having to read that book just because people were that bad. So the point is, people were making people do things out of a religious cause. They were making people do things because this is God's cause. And they were saying God is on our side. God is for us as individuals. He is for our salvation. He is for our redemption. He is for our eternal life. He is for our saving he is not necessarily for every cause that Christians take up in, in different times or the church takes up in different times. Was God for the Crusades? Was God for the Spanish Inquisition? Was God for the witch trials? Was God for the different things that have been done in his name throughout history? No, he was not. But people have used this verse and misused and abused this verse saying that God is for us so we can succeed. God is for us so we can do whatever we want to do. That's not at all what this says. It means that he is for us, not necessarily for our causes all the time. And so this is strictly talking about salvation. It is talking about our walk with God that gets us to heaven, not about everything that we take up as, as some righteous cause. Um, so... Again, this is a rhetorical question that he starts with, um, but as he, as he mentions this, it, it, you know, it's something that we've got to look at. Um, there, is, um, there is this uh, difference, I think, that's very important for us that we have to recognize. God is for us, and what this means is not just for the, the group, but he is for each of us 
individually. In other words, when God is saving the church or when he is saving believers, he is not saving a, a, a group of people only. Yes, there's a group of people, but he's saving you individually. And that's the way this language works out. So God is for us individually. And that's very important for you to recognize is that your relationship, your salvation, what God is doing is very specific and very personal to you. That is important for us to remember because God is not treating us like a, like, like a blanket, you know, one size fits all sort of thing. That's not how he's working. God is working specifically in your life. You are going to have specific problems. You're going to have specific issues. God is going to work with you specifically in your life. And that is important. So God is absolutely for those who believe in Jesus Christ. And because he has adopted them into his family and made them co-heirs with Jesus. So this verse doesn't mean uh, that we won't have opponents, that we won't be opposed. That's not what that means at all. Uh, it simply means that God is for us. Um, and it makes not the slightest particle of dis difference who is against us. So will Christians have opposition? Will Christians have people trying to stand against us? Absolutely. But what, God, what Paul is saying here is that when someone tries to knock you off the path of salvation, they can't. They absolutely can't because God is for us. That's what this means. So this is not necessarily saying that every cause that Christians take up is going to win. That wouldn't go very well for very long. We would see that fall apart quickly because God is not always for our causes. But what we do know is that for us, no one can knock us off the path of salvation. No enemy can stand against us when it comes to us being saved. That is God's business and he never fails. So no enemy has a chance at victory against us when God is on our side. That's a very, very important first thing um, that he talks about. That's, that's verse 31. So our confidence is in God, not in anything that we do, because we are completely dependent upon the gifts of God. Look at everything that he said so far. We were sinful. That's what we did. Um, but we placed our faith in Jesus. Jesus died for our sins. Then Jesus has taken us and begun to sanctify us and he has given us victory over sin and he has given us assurance. He has given us, you know, this, this justification, meaning that we can't be condemned. All of these things, it is all what God has done. And so as we go forward in our life, we should not expect things to change all of a sudden and for it to be on us or for it to be our talents or our good or our work. It is still God. That is what we have to understand. God expects us to walk by faith, not by effort, not by talent, not by skills, not by smarts, but by faith. That is what we need, and that is how God blesses us. So, as we move forward, the next question is based on what God has already done. So, in verse 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he now... Not, how will he now, or how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So essentially what he's saying is that we know that God did not spare his own son, that Jesus was crucified, that Jesus did die and was buried, but he was also rose again. So he didn't spare his own son in order to establish our salvation. And so if he's already done the greatest thing, the most difficult thing there is, how could, how could or would he withhold lesser things? So the, the sacrifice of Jesus was the supreme act of love. Um, that is something that we see, but it reminds us of um, Abraham's readiness to, to, to sacrifice Isaac. We just talked about that today, but here's the difference. At the end of the story, when Abraham and Isaac, God spared Isaac. 
But what, and this is why this is parallel, because in this, he did not spare his own son. Isaac was spared, Jesus was not, and that's the difference. And we talked about that this morning in Sunday school, that, that what, what Abraham and Isaac did, that was for them. But what God did with Jesus, that was for all of us. That was our salvation. And so that's an important thing, that he didn't spare his own son. This is the biggest price that had to be paid for our salvation. So what goes along with salvation? Well, there is the assurance. There is the victory of sin, over sin. There, 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 is, there is eternal life. There is being co-heirs with Christ. There is so much more. And so what Paul is saying is that if God has already given the greatest thing, how could he possibly withhold the lesser things? The fact is, the answer is, the expected answer is he indeed will not withhold the lesser things. So if he will pay the price for our sin, he will give us everything associated with salvation. And so we find that God will graciously give each of us everything uh, related towards salvation. And so when it says graciously give, that's something also that we need to recognize. That, that definitely has a, a meaning. It's not just he's going to give it, but it means that he's going to give it according to his goodwill, according to his love, according to his kindness. And so um, we, we have been conditioned in, in this world to realize nothing is free, right? Um, if, if a business is advertising and they say you get this free, well, you know there's something that they're getting that's paying them back for whatever they're giving you that, that, that's free. That's how we're conditioned in this world. Everything kind of comes at a cost. Everything comes at some price. Well, that's where God differs. What God is giving us, what God is, is, is adding to us in our salvation, it is a gracious gift. He says that it is, and we believe that it is this gracious gift. So God will withhold no part of salvation from us because he has already given his son. So this is another one of those verses that people kind of take out of context. The whole thought process here is salvation. People take this verse out of context and they say, well, this means that God's going to give us anything, anything good, anything good. It's not necessarily what this means. Um, you, you can believe that, you can, you, you can say that, but that's not what the passage says. The passage is talking about salvation. He's not going to withhold any gift of salvation from you. So it doesn't mean that you can just have anything that you want, any way that you want it. You say, God, I want a mansion on a lake and I want to you know, be able to fish for the rest of my life. Well, great, you go want that. But what this says is what God is going to do, which is save us and save us totally and completely. And at the end of the day, would we rather have a human, mortal, temporary life in luxury or would we rather have eternity with God? No matter what you have on this earth, it is temporary. No matter what we possess, no matter what good things we have, and I know that there is a difference, and, and, and you know, they, they say money can't buy happiness, and, and you've obviously heard a lot of people make the joke, well, let, let's, let's prove that. Let's try real hard and find out. Well, the reality is whatever we get on this earth, it is temporary. And you know, the thing is, no matter how rich people get, no matter how many things they have, don't they still get sick? Don't they still go through some of the same struggles? Wouldn't they hurt just as badly if a loved one is lost? All of those things still happen. And so that's where, that's where, that's where the rubber meets the road. And here's the thing. God's there for that. God's there to get us through those challenging and dark times. That's where this passage really kicks in, is the fact that if you have a little or if you have a lot, no matter what it is, God is there to bring us through those things, to bring us through those challenges, and that's where he's going to, to really show how he has provided for us. And so, 
As we get into 33 and 34, verse 33 and 34, we move to a new question in which God asks, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now let's talk about the word elect here. Um, the way that Paul uses this word, it's usually referring to specifically Israel as the elect, as God's chosen people. We're very familiar with that terminology from the Old Testament, but here in the New Testament referring to Christians, it is a little different. Um, Paul is not necessarily talking about a class of people who have been elected, but it's more the quality of the, the, the person, the, the fact that they have been elected. In other words, this person has believed in Jesus Christ, they have become a believer, and they are part of the elect because of, of that process, not because they were born into it or because they have some class or societal right to that thing. And so he's talking about believers, although this word usually refers to Israelites, he's using it for believers, people that have chosen to follow after Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of what he's talking about there. And so there, there are people that have, been, that have trusted Jesus for their salvation, and he's not saying that no one will make a charge against a believer. That's not what he's saying at all. Um, the, the name of Satan is really best translated as the accuser. So we know that he's going to try to make accusations against us. Um, Paul's point is that when God is consistently justifying us, no one, no accusation against us can stand for even a moment. So read the, let's read the wording again. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies that's in the present tense. That means that God is justifying. And so as we are sinning, as we are you know, doing things that we aren't supposed to be doing, God is actively justifying us through the blood of Jesus Christ. So, yes, when you are saved, your whole life is laid out. And, and all the sins that you're going to commit are there, and God forgives all of those sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. But for us, we're, we're, our life isn't on a timeline. It is, it is a moving thing. And so as we live, as we make mistakes, as we sin, as, as, as we fall short of God's glory, God is justifying us. And so it is like, it is, it is like well, Amanda told me back when she was little, I don't know if this happens anymore, but she would go to Disney World and there were, there were times where like if you sat down on a bench and, and had a snack or whatever, you would see the cast coming along, the people that worked there coming along and like sweeping up little messes and just cleaning it up as it went so it never got dirty. Think about that in our lives. We're still going to make little messes, big messes. We're going to do things wrong, but God is justifying us, constantly justifying us. So no charge can stick, no charge can stay because we are constantly justified. So that's the first part of this. Who can make a charge against us? Because it is God that justifies us. And we know that Satan's going to try, but it can, it can never happen. So we may be concerned that even though we sin after we're saved, that that sin is eventually going to catch up to us. Um, and we do have to face earthly consequences for our sin. So we may have to pay a price for our sin, but the ultimate price has been paid by Jesus Christ. And so God actively justifying us, um, that's an important thing for us to recognize. Now the next question that he asks is related to who is the one responsible for condemnation. So he says, who is it that condemns? And who is it that ultimately condemns? Well, the Bible teaches us that in the last days, Jesus is the judge, and he is responsible for condemning anybody that's going to be condemned. But he is also the justifier. He is the reason that we're saved. And so if Jesus is, he has justified us, he is justifying us, he will justify us, he will not also condemn us at the same time. 
Now, judges sometimes on this earth reverse their decisions, but Jesus never does. And so when he has justified us, we will always be justified, meaning we can never be condemned. So everyone can accuse us. Satan can accuse us. The world can accuse us. Our own family can accuse us, but only God condemns. But God is justifying us. And so we cannot be condemned. That's why we can't be condemned. So title of this point, we, we cannot be condemned. The reason is, is because God is justifying us constantly. Jesus is justifying us. It is he who brings condemnation and he will not con- condemn those that he has justified. So that is the beauty of this and that is the power of this is that we are saved through the work of Jesus Christ. So that's something that, that's very, very important for us to remember. So it, it is God constantly justifying us. Um, so the Bible, uh, or even, even if we find ourselves entangled in our own sins, you know, one thing that will happen is our hearts will condemn us. Our hearts will say, well, you have done wrong. And, and we go through seasons of deal, uh, guilt or doubt. We go through those seasons where we feel that we've done wrong, or we feel like we're not sure about what we are doing. And so it may not always be a, a sin, like one of the, the Ten Commandments, but it may be something you're like, well, I just don't know if I'm right. I don't know if I'm in the right job. I don't know if I'm in the, you know, the, the right place in my life. I don't know if I'm doing the right things right now. We may go through those, those times, and your heart will accuse you during those times. But let me remind you, the heart is deceitful above all things. At the end of the day, it is what, it is what Jesus thinks and is what Jesus says that matters. And yes, there, there may be things that Jesus wants to change in your life, but the overall thing, the thing that's going to get us through, the thing that's going to help to remove doubt, the thing that's going to give us that victorious life that, that, that he tells us about here, is that we need to believe in the justification that Jesus has did. So it's not about believing that you're a good person. It's really not something you see in the Bible. But what it is about is believing that Jesus is a good Savior. He is a wonderful Savior. He is the only Savior. His blood is the blood that has cleansed you. So you can't ruin the blood of Jesus. You can't ruin your relationship with God. You can't walk off the path. You can't be knocked off the path because He is yours, and you are His. You may not be good at keeping Him, but He is good at keeping you. And so that's what we need to remember when we think about Jesus Christ. So for this reason, it's impossible for a Christian to be condemned. Uh, It is is because we cannot uh, be justified and condemned by the same judge. Jesus isn't going to reverse His decision. So even our own sin cannot condemn us because Jesus is the final judge and he has already justified us. You know, the wonderful thing is, Paul kind of concludes this part of it, the end of verse 34, with a very comforting thought. Not only is Jesus not condemning us, but instead he is interceding for us. He is at the right hand of the Father. Even in our darkest moments, the moments when we're doing things we're ashamed of, even in the moments where we're not seeking after him, and we know those days come, the day that... Either your alarm didn't go off or you didn't wake up in time and you don't have time for your normal routine. You don't have time to spend some time in the Word or prayer. you got to go. So you grab a little bite to eat, you go, you you hit the road. And it's those days, isn't it, where the the most difficult things happen, the the challenges come along or some opportunity comes along that you don't take or whatever. But, But it's those days, it's those days where we think, Man, I'm just not a very good Christian. I'm not a very good disciple of Christ. And what you need to remember, and this is an essential of Christianity, this is the thing that gets you through. At that moment where you are feeling at your lowest, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, saying, I died for him. 
I died for her. My blood covers that. My blood covers that sin. That's what we need to remember, is that at the end of the day, it's not about who we are, but it is about who he is and what he has done. So not only can we not be condemned, but we cannot be separated. And this is the second, this is the part where people begin memorizing right along this time. You know, people remember if God is for us, who can be against us. But really starting in verse 35, that's where people memorize a lot of this. Because he says, what can, or who shall, who shall separate us from the love, of God, uh, the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So this is where people really begin to memorize because these, these are the things that really help us, that really get us through. So this is the, this is the thing. So Paul asks this question of separation. Uh, and it's interesting that he says who instead of what. Um, Paul is not thinking about events or, or, or forces. He's thinking about people. He's thinking about humanity separating us, whether that be ourselves or whether it be somebody else. He's thinking about individuals. He has people in his mind when he says this. Um, so that's, that's important. We must understand that no one, not even ourselves, can separate us from the love of Christ. Um, he will love us regardless of what happens in our lives. That's very important for us to know. Um, there's really, and some translations kind of indicate this, whether you know it or not, when, when the New Testament in its original language in, in, in Greek was actually kind of started start to be discovered, because what you may or may not know about Bible history is, is that in the early days, these letters were everywhere. So a letter to Rome and a letter to Corinth and all these, these letters were everywhere. And there were copies everywhere because people said, wow, this needs to be copied. And they sent it in all these different places. Well, there came a point around 500 AD where the Catholic Church said we need one Bible. And so the, they commissioned a guy named Jerome to translate something called the Vulgate. And it was in Latin. And that was that. Like the Bible was in Latin for the next thousand years and it was illegal to put it in any other translation. So in the 1400s and so, some of these manuscripts started being found. Um, these manuscripts that were in the original Greek language. And one thing that stuck out is that there was no punctuation at all. And so punctuation plays a major part in understanding passages. And in this one uh, specifically... Um, the, the punctuation could change how it might read. So who can separate us from the love of Christ? The punctuation might make it mean who can separate us from our love of Christ. Now that would be rough because we know Christ loves us and we know his love is infinite and his love is ever un unfailing. But are there times that we don't love Jesus? Fortunately, that's not what this passage is about because there are times where if we say we love Jesus, do our actions prove it out? Well, this passage is about his love for us, not our love for him, because he loves us infinitely and he loves us regardless of what we do or what we say or how we act. And so this is about his love of us. So this truth that he says, or well, this question that he obviously has his own answer for, um, but what can separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is simply nothing. But it launches him into this rhetorical passage in which he suggests a number of things that may try to separate us from Christ. And so he goes through these things, and the first thing is tribulation, um, and, and the best definition is that it's some kind of oppressive state. Uh, the, the word has the word um, uh, lith in it, which is like rock, uh, so it has this idea of pressure on us. 
Uh, so tribulation would be like pressure. And, 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 and when we think about it in terms of, of, of human interaction, this would be temptation. This would be pressure to do something. Pressure to, to, to either to do something or to abstain from doing something we're already doing. It's that kind of thing. And it can be physical, it can be emotional, mental, whatever, but it, but it is pressure. And so when the Bible uses that term, we're, talk, we're thinking about that. Now the next word is distress. Um, and it's, it's specifically oppressive and, and sometimes constraining in nature. So I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. And so that, that's, that's more like when you're supposed to be doing things. So, so think, for example, Paul imprisoned. He wanted to go out and preach in the synagogues. He wanted to go out and preach in the public spaces, but he couldn't. So he was in distress because all the things that he wanted to do, the things that he was used to doing to serve God, he couldn't do those things. So that would be a time of distress for him. Now, persecution... This is the systematic hunting down of adherents of a particular religion to inflict pain or death upon them, especially to destroy the religion by destroying the adherent or forcing the adherent to renounce their belief. And so persecution specifically is about making us either dead or making us denounce our faith. That's what persecution is about. So people sometimes do misuse the word persecution. I agree. Um, but when they vilify Christians, and that happened then, and it still happens now when they vilify Christians, then that's when this move towards persecution begins. Because when Christians become villains in public society's eyes, that's when they go after them. Now, here's the thing. Is persecution going to come for Christians? Absolutely it's going to come. Is it a bad thing? Well, that's when the church really grows. And so I don't know what you want to say about that. But, you know, the thing is with, with, with America, with the land of the free, the home of the brave, and, 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 you know, kind of lazy Christianity, we haven't had the same challenges that, old, that, that Christians from previous generations have had. And so those challenges made people rise to the occasion, made people step up, and that's when churches really experience growth. In other words, persecuting the church, people have said in the past, is kind of like throwing uh, water on a grease fire. It's when, that's when it really spreads. And so what we have to recognize is that it's coming. Paul's not painting persecution in necessarily a negative light. He's just saying that it won't separate you from the love of Christ. So if you are going through persecution, so what are we supposed to say then? What shall we say then? Uh, what are we supposed to say? Well, when we're going through persecution, what we need to realize is that Jesus still loves us. He did not abandon us to this. That's one of the really bad things about a works-based works salvation and, and about thinking that God's going to give you only good things. So if you have a works-based salvation and you've done what you're supposed to do and you think that God's only going to give you good things and then you experience something bad, all of a sudden your faith is shaken because you're now like, God doesn't love me. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God's love and the persecution that we face, those aren't connected. So we're going to face persecution, but that doesn't change the fact that God loves us. God has not abandoned us when we suffer. God is with us when we suffer. God loves us when we suffer. Will we go through these difficult times? Yes, but God will be with us through all of that. So he mentions famine. Now, this is not necessarily a person, although famines can be caused by people from time to time, but it's a severe shortage of food resulting in violent hunger, starvation, and death. And so that's what famine would be. He does throw in nakedness, uh, and I actually didn't put that in my notes just because I think we all know what it is. Um, but there is a difference between the nakedness that we see in our society now where people choose to go without clothes and the nakedness in Paul's society where they simply could not afford clothes. Um, you have to realize that most people existed 
with maybe two pairs of clothes or suits of clothes in their life. Rich people had more than that, but most people on a day-to-day basis would have one or two suits of clothes and that was it. Maybe one pair of, it wasn't shoes, it was sandals, but one pair of foot coverings, that would be about all they would have. Um, and so you weren't far from it. You weren't far from being naked. One, one, something happens to those clothes and, and, and you're in that place. And so Paul is, does mention that. But he mentions danger. So this could be anything that puts us in, 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 in harm's way. And it doesn't have to be religious in nature at all. It can be some you know, shipwreck, as, as in Paul's case. Or it, or it can be something that, that, that happens in our lives that puts us in danger. And then finally he says the sword. Now, this obviously means death, and it kind of specifically means death by execution. Um, and so I think it's very interesting to point out that of all these things, so, so we've got tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. Paul had faced all these things except the sword by the time he writes this passage. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that Paul's saying, I'm convinced that none of this separates us from the love of God. This wasn't philosophy for Paul. This was practice. He had went through all these things, and none of them separated him from the love of Christ. And so he's convinced that it will not. These things won't. And you know what? He would face the sword. That's historically the way that he died, was he was executed outside of Rome. He was beheaded. And so we recognize that the man saying this, although we know it's inspired by the Holy Spirit and it's the Word of God, the man saying this had lived it out. He had been through these things. And he said, I'm convinced that these don't separate us from the love of Jesus. Because when you have this idea that God only gives you good things and then you get a bad thing, you think, well, God doesn't love me anymore. But Paul didn't have that idea. He understood that that God's love is something that abides through the good and it abides through the bad. He had been through all the bad and he was convinced that this did not change his experience. So not even the most terrible parts of humanity or nature can separate us from the love of Christ. So verse 36 is actually a quotation from Psalm 44, 22. Um, And it's really there to reinforce the idea that there is real risk in following Jesus. So it says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Um, Throughout the years, there have been people that have, I guess you would say, signed up to be a Christian or agreed to be a Christian that had no idea that there was risk. But there is. There is a real risk. There should be real devotion that goes along with it. But there is real risk for us. We will always be surrounded by enemies and we must maintain true devotion no matter the cost. We are going to face times where we are put in that choice. And so this is where the tribulation comes in. We're put in the position where we've got to make a choice. Will we follow Jesus or will we do what's easier? Will we just go with the pressure to do what's easier and what is easier in any given time or any given situation you know, there was, there's, there, there was this debate very recently in a, a college classroom. I was reading this, this article, and, um, you know, people were saying, you know, if I had lived in antebellum south, I would have been against slavery, and I would have spoke out against it and all those kinds of things. And the professor says, no, you wouldn't. Most of us wouldn't. The only people, as well, the professor said, the only people that it's believable that they would have spoke out against slavery in antebellum south are the people that would have in this day and age spoken out against something that was very popular, that was very tied in economically, and it would have brought them very much negative criticism uh, back for making that stand, making that public stand. And when we look at our society today, um, we're very much a bandwagon society. In other words, people jump on the bandwagon when it's comfortable, when, when, it's, when it's safe to say, hey, I'm for this cause, or I'm against 
this thing. That's when people jump on and, and, and now they're brave and they're activists and things like that. But those front runners, those are the people that would have stood against something. We have to be a front runner because we're going to face pressure. We're going to face tribulation. There's going to be times where people want us to compromise our beliefs, compromise our morals, compromise the values that the Bible gives us. Those are times that we have to be the front runner and stand even though it's unpopular, even though it's not something that we ourselves think that we'll benefit from in any way, we've got to continue to stand because the love of God is there and we are called to stand even when everyone else turns away. So there is real cost, there is real danger. So no matter what the world does to us, they cannot take us away from God. In fact, in death, that is the Christian's ultimate victory. So all of those things that we've said have happened, then meet with all of those things that we say will happen. So when we die, not only have we been justified, but we see our future justification. Not only are we seeing sanctification, but we're seeing glorification. Not only are we seeing abundant physical life, but we're seeing eternal life in heaven. And so all of those things come together when the Christian dies. So, even if we are slaughtered for Christ's sake, we will not be separated. So, we are not defeated by the things that the world throws at us. In fact, we are more than conquerors over all these things. This means that we are um, utterly defeating the obstacles of the world and the victory comes because of our position in Jesus Christ. So, love here is stated in the past tense. And the reason it is, um, so what, what I'm saying in verse uh, 37, it says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's in the past tense. Because it's talking about Jesus' crucifixion. And that, that is a demonstrative thing that you can point to and say, this is how we know that he loves us. And so we're more than conquerors over everything that we face because he loved us already. And so that's, that's the point here. That's the thing that kind of um, rings out and rings very true. And so he finishes out, Paul finishes out this passage by, by this eloquent statement meaning uh, or saying, I am convinced. Um, and again, this conviction expresses certainty. Uh, Paul sees no possible shadow of doubt in what he's about to say. So in verse 38 he says, For I am sure, I am convinced that neither death nor life. Um, so the sense of these last two verses uh, is that nothing that happens in death or life or anything in between can separate us from the love of God. So we understand life and death. That's something that even in this day of, of modern modernity and you know, medicine the way that it is and all these other things, we understand life and death. We know um, what that means. And that's kind of the old foe and the old thing that everybody has faced. But everything in between also, all of those things, none of those things can separate us from Jesus Christ. So angels and rulers, that can refer to both um, natural and supernatural powers. Uh, so where he says it in verse 38, angels or rulers. So again, it can be supernatural things that are going on or it can be the, the natural things that, that are happening. That's something that we have to realize. Um, there is no need for us to concern ourselves with the work of politicians because nothing they do can separate us from the love of God. It is kind of the national pastime to wring our hands and say, oh Lord, what are they doing in Washington? Or what are they doing in Montgomery? Or what are they doing across the pond? We're, we, we wring our hands and worry about that, but that can't separate us from God. Our mission will remain the same. Our methods will remain the same. Everything about what we do will remain the same. Everything that really, really matters will remain the same no matter what they do. No matter what a politician does, no matter what laws change, no matter what policies pass, no matter what comes or what goes, what we have to do will remain the same. The costs may go up. 
but the actions and the activities will remain the same. That's important for us to know that. So, many people harbor great anxiety for the future. This is what comes to pass. What has happened what will come to pass. Um, but the reality is um, we don't worry about those things. We aren't anxious about the future. We aren't anxious about the present day. Um, we should be anxious about nothing, even the mysterious things, because um, those that dwell in heaven nor those that dwell in Hades or hell, as it says. So we don't worry about those things. We don't worry about what's happening in those places because we are with God and God loves us and we cannot be separated from him. So there is nothing that God has created that will be able to undo the work that God has done. So, so just to kind of wrap it up, Nothing in creation, Paul says, nothing in creation can separate us from God. So, so whatever it is that God's made, and, and, and there's been a lot of things that God's made that's now been twisted and has been, has been broken and has been fallen, but none of those things and nothing else can separate us from God. Do you get the point that being with God is better than being away from God? That's the point of this. And so... This doesn't mean that we won't have these hard times, that we won't have difficulties, persecution, tribulation, and all the other things that go on. It doesn't mean that we won't have these things. It means that in all of these things, we will not be separated from God. No force, whether it be political, natural, supernatural, or even time itself, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a passage that you need to know. You need to know these truths because it helps us to maintain the proper perspective if you're going through a hard time, that doesn't mean that God has forgotten you or abandoned you or doesn't love you. It just means that he's loving you through that. He is with you through all of those things. So, again, some of these essentials that we've looked at, they're, they're, they're doctrinal things. And, and Paul is teaching these things. And, and these are things that if you say, well, if you don't believe this, then you really can't be a biblical Christian. So some of those things are there. But there are some of these things, and we've got to be sure that our theology is correct, but some of these things have to do with how we live. These essentials are how we make it through the difficult times. And so the concluding passage of Romans chapter 8 reminds us that God will always love us, never condemn us, and never allow us to be separated from him. So we'll face all forms of trouble in this world. That is a, that is a certainty. But we can never be condemned, and we can never be separated from the love of God. And so this is a promise and God's promises are guarantees. So whatever we face, and, and we do go through times where we think, has God forgotten me? Has God maybe lost my phone number? You know, do, do, I need to send, do I need to send him my address again so that maybe he can start sending me blessings again because I've had so much difficulty? We do go through those times. And, and look, if you, if you look in Scripture, you will see people that struggle with this very thing. Read the Psalms, and, and, and David constantly talks about the fact that I'm surrounded by enemies. Everything's going wrong. It's a really bad time in my life. He goes through those kinds of times, but he always remembers God. And the reality is the circumstances around our lives doesn't change God, and it doesn't change our relationship with God. We have to look to that in those difficult times, in those challenging times. And let me tell you, right here today is the best time to commit to trusting God and trusting his promises. Because there's coming a day when there will be that tribulation, there will be that pressure pushing you to go against God. And if you haven't already made the decision, if you haven't made the decision even now, then in that day it will be more difficult. Don't think that those that want to harm us won't go to any means necessary to separate us. 
They will try anything. They will do anything. They will threaten what we hold precious. They will do anything they can to make us deny Jesus. That day will come. I believe it will come in America, even if we're not called America anymore. So what I tell you is this day, choose to follow him. Choose to trust his promises so that when that day comes, the decision's already made. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for those promises. And I pray that you help us to build the foundation of our life upon them even now. We know that there are challenges ahead. We know that we will go through the normal hard times that everybody goes through. We will have sickness. We will, we will be in need. We will lose loved ones. And all of those things are so hard and so difficult. But we also know that because of our choice to follow you, we will face your enemies. We will face those that hate you. We will face those that will do anything to see your work stopped. And in those days, the only thing that will keep us going is your promises. And so, Father, I pray that you write them on our hearts. Remind us what you have said, and I pray that we would never go away from that. Thank you for what you have taught us. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you are going to do. I pray that we will always be faithful to you because we know from your word you will always be faithful to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.